Good afternoon and welcome to Interoperability Quest Wins, Challenges, and New Paradigms in the Fight for Seamless Data Flow, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by SADA. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the questions box, and we will take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 45, 50 minutes. We're going to start with our panel discussion featuring Dr. Zafar Chowdhury, SVP and Chief Digital and Information Officer with Seattle Children's, Craig Richardville, SVP and Chief Information and Digital Officer with SCL Health, and Michael Ames, Senior Director for Healthcare and Life Sciences with SADA. And then we will have our Q&A. So we are going to jump right into our conversation because um, we have a lot of interesting things to talk about. Um, let's get an overview of your organization and role. Michael, can we start with you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad to have everybody here. Michael Ames, I'm Senior Director for Healthcare and Life Sciences at SADA, which is a Google Cloud consultancy and reseller. I'm responsible for all of our strategy and work in the healthcare and life sciences market. I'm, I'm a technical guy, came up through the ranks as a database developer and engineer, went and got some education in biomedical informatics and, and had a career in through uh, UC Health, University of Colorado and the Colorado Center for Personalized Medicine. Um, and I work now within SADA helping to figure out how we map Google Cloud technologies and capabilities to the problems facing healthcare organizations. Um, and just, you know, really grateful, Anthony, for setting this up, Zafar and Craig, that we could uh, all be here to, together today to talk about Interop. Okay, very good. Um, we're waiting for Craig to join us and we've got Zafar on the line. So Zafar, can you tell us a little bit about your organization and your role? Good afternoon. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me on the program today. So I'm Zafar Chowdhury. I'm the Chief Digital and Information Officer at Seattle Children's. Seattle Children's is a pediatric health system based in Seattle, but we cover Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho. We have about 46 sites with about 13,000 people, and um, we do research in pediatrics as well, uh, as well as take care of the kiddos. All right, very good. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. Let's jump into our first question. We'll we'll get Craig into the conversation as soon as he's able to join us. Um, how would you describe where the industry is regarding interoperability? Michael, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a, we, when we were kind of chatting a little bit before this began. I, I heard myself say the words, "This is a fun topic." And, and then the other part of my brain that listens to the words that I say says interoperability is never fun. It's always just kind of work that you have to do. Um, but I think what is interesting right now is it is fun in the sense that for a long time, a lot of us have been kind of pushing on this rock, trying to get it to move, trying to get healthcare systems to think about interoperability as more than just connecting internal clinical systems to support operations, but ultimately, how do we actually sort of free the data and get it into the hands of other organizations and people and technologies that can do interesting things with it? Um, 
it would be nice if it didn't take government regulations to make things happen sometimes. But here we are, for better or for worse, and, and I think that it creates now an exciting moment in healthcare that I think, you know, it's akin to breaking up Ma Bell uh, 40 years ago and, and ultimately finally standardizing on a single kind of plug for a telephone, right? Or akin to uh, finally agreeing upon TCP/IP protocols um, in, in the late 70s for the what became ultimately internet connections. That at some point, if you're going to unleash the power of a technology, you ultimately have to have agreement and willingness, and sometimes regulations on the part of the parties concerned, to uh, to start operating in terms of standards and to share and to connect and to move things around. We're on the cusp of that right now, I think, with respect to healthcare data because of the changes in the industry um, uh, uh, requiring now, in many cases, the movement of data that's been resisted before. And I'm, I'm really excited to see how this feeds into the innovation cycle, um, the new technologies that can come from it and the ways that it can affect and, and, and hopefully improve our delivery of patient care. It's an exciting time. It's an exciting time, as you said. It's a uh, it's a two-edged sword, um, you know. So, Doctor Doctor Chowdhury, tell tell me where you would say we are with regard to interoperability. So, I would I would say, isn't it the age-old problem of we do actually have technology that connects together, but it is the vendor or the health system that doesn't want to share or doesn't want to connect. I mean, I've certainly seen more of the issues around people and the process than definitely the technology. I mean, messaging, APIs, fire, all of those things have all been set up and most systems that we work with can talk to each other. But when you then get into the process of, all right, vendor A and B, we now do want to talk to each other, then all kinds of other issues pop up. We need a contract, we need a statement of work, you need to pay a license for that standard interface, you have to do all these different things. And that's what slows things out, and certainly my experience, or, or when I'm talking to another health system and saying, do you want to share data? Then there needs to be a data sharing agreement, then there needs to be lots of discussion, then 20 lawyers have to be involved. And before you know it, something that could be connected in days becomes months and months and months of sort of discussion and issues and at that point we sort of lose the interest level right because you're talking to a clinician and saying i can share this information from point a to point b they don't necessarily want to wait eight months for you to negotiate all these agreements before that happens and i agree with you michael you know it shouldn't take the federal act of god to get things moving but it feels as though that's really what necessarily needs to happen, not only from a vendor perspective, but also from a health system perspective. We should also have directives from the federal government to say, aren't we doing this for the patient's best interest? So I've sort of seen that challenge pop up and down versus, you know, we're an Epic system, can we connect it to Cerner? Yeah, can we connect it back to Epic? Yeah, we can. Can we share that data into a data warehouse? Yes, we can. But it's all the other stuff that I've found slows us down. You know, Zafar, that's the that's a, a theme I've heard you hitting on in in other conversations that we've had on other topics. Um, 
there's a frustration there with how long it takes to get things done. And a lot of it has to do with sort of legal and contractual stuff. Do you, is that just a, a point of irritation for you as you try and move things forward? Yeah, I think you come across that. I won't be the only person that comes up across it, but really if the goal and mission of the organization is the betterment of patient care, and then you as an IT person have to deal with a level of bureaucracy, legality, contracting. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that, but it does add time and effort to something that could relatively be simple. And, you know, Michael works on the life sciences healthcare side. I'm sure you can say, Michael, that technologically, if I came to you, you could probably connect point A and point B. And so as technologists, we could probably agree that we can connect. But then there's all the other stuff that you have to go through. And if you're dealing with a vendor, you know, if you're trying to connect data from one EMR to another, then the vendors also have to be involved before you can get that three-way agreement in place. And, and that's going to slow things down. And I don't think I've seen that change in forever. Yeah, we've we've been living we've been living this for a long time. Um, for for anybody who was involved in cancer research uh, uh, 10, 12 years ago, then we were doing CA big all the time, right? So the NCI had their huge initiative. We were going to cure cancer in 10 years by connecting everybody's systems and data. And I will say the technology wasn't great. Like what we can do now on the technology side for connecting points A and B is a thousand times better than what we could do in 2008, 2009. Um, but that program was hundreds of millions of dollars of, of tax money that, that ultimately closed down. And as far as I know, we haven't cured cancer yet. And the challenges were just as you are saying so far, they were not really about the technology again, it wasn't great but the challenges weren't in the technology. It was, an, it was a naive belief on the part of the industry that if we could, you know, we've got this internet now, and if we can get grid computing going and we can get you know, shared authentication going, then we could really make something happen. But in the end, what killed it was organizations saying, well, hold on, I, IT guys, I think it's neat that you've got these interconnection capabilities but who said you can share that data? What are they gonna do with that data? What happens if they make a great breakthrough on that data? Do we get credit for that? What happens if they take that data and they decide they're gonna they're gonna charge people for it and they're gonna get money? Are we gonna get a piece of that? Should we get a piece of that? Do our patients know what's happening here? Those questions were completely unaddressed and they're still, I, part of what I'm hearing you say so far is that they're still not fully addressed. But I think what we have now, as far as state of the industry is maybe a greater recognition that we're seeing through things like regulations those are the questions that really have to be addressed. And, you know, what's exciting to me on the technology side is if we can figure out how to open up those doors, we've got technology then that can streamline the movement, you know, like we like we did not have 10 years ago. Yeah, maybe the bigger question, Michael, is, so in the scenario of healthcare, who actually owns the data, right? So if, if I've I've got a series of pediatric patients and I've got, hundreds of thousands, millions of records over the last, you know, we've been in business over a hundred years. And some is on paper, but a lot is digitized. Who does that data really belong to? Does it belong to the patient? Does it belong to the health system? Does it belong to the insurance company who paid the claim? 
on that particular case? Because if it belonged to the patient and we needed only patient consent to share the data, wouldn't that make things simpler versus, you know, health systems sharing data and they're being slated for they didn't have permission or are you going to sell that data? How are you going to use that data? I think that that's still very controversial. And it does have an impact then on how people act when they're sharing data. Although I do think, and, you know, tell me if you agree with this, I do think that the Cures Act tilts the needle. It's still not, you know, 100% clear, but it tilts the needle toward patient ownership of data. Because now at least, um, at least it is harder for whoever possesses the data to deny the patient's request to move it somewhere else, right? We've, we've, we've put at least that much control in the patient's hand that they should be able to say, I would like to have a copy of this data. I would like to authorize this 30 third party app to see that data. And it is now harder than it was a year and a half ago for an organization to die, deny that request to the patient, which feels to me like we're shifting that needle toward the patient is the owner of their own data. Does that sound legitimate? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. But then I think the other question that comes up is, so if the patient should have access and can request it, how do you get the patient to opt in or opt out of this interoperability model, right? So yes, if a patient says, give me my data, you're required to give them their data. But in a bigger piece, you know, you're talking about how do you use the cloud, to right. do all this learning, artificial uh, intelligence, helping on speedy diagnoses. So how do we get, you know, if I have a million patients in my database, how do I get those people to opt in so I can work with you or another vendor or one of the cloud providers to really put the data into a machine that can crunch it and give us some real insights into whether it's disease patterns or its social determinants of health or, you know, that's really the bigger question because I don't know what that answer is. You know, how do you get all the patients in the U.S. to opt in or opt out of sharing or not sharing the data? That's a that's a huge amount of work, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and obviously that's a model that's been tried um, in places. I remember years ago, certain universities in the US basically said, we have an opt-in consent model, we have an opt-out consent model. We're gonna assume that the patient is allowing us to use their data for research, and we're gonna give them the option to say no. And, and from the researcher's perspective, it was amazing because they were getting like 80, 85% consent, amassing huge amounts of, of data. But uh, over time, the, those policies have not stood up to regulation or to law or to legal scrutiny and, and have tended to revert back to opt-in models. So that's another interesting challenge and, and probably, unfortunately, another place where sometime in the next five, 10 years, we're going we're gonna to be looking for government regulation, I think, to bring some clarity to that. To what extent can data be used without an explicit opt-in by a patient, if at all? Um, that's a darn good question, and I, I don't think that there's a clear industry-driven answer to that. Well, since it's a darn good question, let's see if we can get Craig Richardville to comment on it. Craig, who owns the data? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think for me, it's uh, maybe it's a little bit simpler. I think the patient owns the data. I think uh, uh, for most of us, it's, it's clear as the patient's data. I think the questions 
come up now how do you make that data interoperable and move it around and ensure you've got the proper consent and it's documented for the security and the privacy of our patients, but it is the patient's data. Um, when you look at what uh, most of us are trying to advocate on is to ensure that uh, when we start looking at treatment, payment, and operations, which was referred to by Michael in the past, uh, those are things that we should be able to transfer that data around in between different providers and allow that to be able to be used for those, and that's part of the, the HIPAA safe harbors is to ensure that things can be utilized for the proper reasons uh, among different providers. In some cases, I'll go back to uh, a simple example uh, on our credit report. For example, I can't just say, hey, you know what, you can send my financial information over to that bank, but don't send that bankruptcy that I had, you know, just send the good stuff over there. <laughs> I think we've got to make sure that the things that we uh, that we are sending are things that are uh, uh, meaningful for that provider, or in this case, that simple example, that bank, to make a decision. And that would be for us on the provider side. As you de-identify it and move things out, I think for uh, that is something that will benefit us greatly when you see some people like Epic with EHRN and there's some other initiatives out there that's capturing that data, but the identifiable data is certainly owned by the patient and we as healthcare providers have the, uh, the honor and the privilege of keeping it safe and secure for that patient. So Zafar, do you see more subtlety in it than that? Craig Craig seems to it's kind of see a black and white, it's the patient's data. What are, what are the issues that you're working through? <laughs> No, I, I I do agree with Craig. It should be as simple as how he's describing it. I think in practicality, there's a lot of agreement or disagreement. It depends on who, who the parties are that are involved, right? So for us, if I'm sharing data with another health system and I'm on the, on the same EMR as them, that's pretty straightforward. If they're on a different EMR, then that's a different level of discussion. If I'm sending the information to an insurance payer, that's a very different type of discussion because they'll have a different set of requirements. So I think it really based on use cases, well, what are the requirements? So I agree with Craig, you know, you should send over the relevant information that can probably help in patient care, but a payer may not necessarily want that. They might want something else that's not related to patient care, but it's more related to the billing or more related to the diagnosis codes, et cetera. So I think it's a slightly different use case based on what who you're actually sharing with. And if you were then sharing with the federal government for just statistical purposes, that would be different. If we were going to crunch different conditions in the cloud, that would be a very different type of discussion. It's certainly what I've seen. All right, well, very good. Let's uh, go to our next question. Um, Craig, let's start with you. How do you think your organization is doing when it comes to interoperability and what are some recent wins and upcoming objectives? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, when you go back to the uh, original and sorry I couldn't get on at the beginning, I could hear a lot of it. I uh, just couldn't get my, my voice in there. But, you know, we're, as an industry, I think we're still pretty infantile with how we are. I think we have some data technology and systems, and we have a level of complexity 
that, that many don't have. So my simple financial services example, you know, there's not like a bank on, you know, every other corner. But we have some individual providers and we have a lot of individuals out there. So we certainly have some large ones, but we have plenty of community providers that are independent. We just don't have that kind of volume in some of the other industries. So I, I think we're mixed. I think for those, and that was commented earlier, those, we are an epic shop. And I think epic within the epic ecosystem has created a great way to be able to share back and forth. Uh, we've got a couple of, uh, 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 in some of our communities that we serve, we've got a few areas that uh, are not. Uh, they're on a different vendor, for example. And with that, we do have some uh, some HIEs that are being uh, still that we use. We use one in Montana. We use a couple of them and a couple of different ones in Colorado. One of them in Colorado just merged with another state HIE, and so that's going to allow uh, even uh, additional um, sharing of data. But you know, it, it's complex. It's it's. Uh, I would say that we are doing as good as we can given the environment that uh, we've all been kind of being part of. Um, it's it's adequate, but it certainly isn't optimal. And I think as we uh, mature what's happening at the policy level and the government, I do want to applaud CHIME and their continued advocacy for moving us toward uh, certain standards and levels of interoperability. That's the best way that we can uh, manage and treat our patients. But, but I think some of the wins, Anthony, are the HIE interactions. The, we're in uh, EPIC environments, um, makes it easier. As you go across those, HIEs do provide a bridge. Uh, it's it's uh, not as it's not optimal, but it is a success that we've got a couple of nice HIEs in our communities that we serve. Uh, it's expensive, but it's needed. Uh, very good. We'll go into that a little more. But Zafar, your your thoughts on uh, how your organization is doing? So very similar to Craig, we we moved from Cerna to Epic during the pandemic. We're now exchanging data more often with surrounding organizations because most of the ecosystem in the Pacific Northwest runs the EPIC EMR. And certainly, by all counts, I have less fax machines than I used to since we did this work. You know, for me, the litmus test is if you're really exchanging data, how many fax machines do you have? And across the country, you could probably still find a lot of fax machines. And we've been able to do information exchange from Epic to Cerna. It's not as easy with the small pediatric practices who seem to be on every different small system you can imagine that was built in a back room somewhere. <laughs> so that's still a facts-based challenge that we have. But yeah, predominantly we've been focusing on sending information from Epic to Epic or Epic to Cerna. Between systems in the hospital, we're pretty mature in terms of sharing data between third-party systems and the EMR, but most are, from what I can tell. Um, that's really where we're up to as a pediatric health system. We don't actually share data between pediatric hospitals unless they are on the EPIC platform, because you can do that too. Right. So... I mean, it's it's one question of whether or not we even consider epic to epic interactions interoperability, right? I mean, that should just does that even count? It should it, it should just work, right? So it should, yeah. Think about it. 
Um, we have an audience question that is going to touch on something I want to talk about a little more. Uh, can you comment on the relative value of the various regional HIEs in interoperability? Do they make the legal business issues less challenging? So, Craig, you seem to be saying, um, yeah, they, they provide some value, but it's it's not as easy as some might think. It's it does it's not a cure all or it. What are your thoughts there, Craig? Yeah, you know it's uh, it's uh, challenging. So why I say that is number one, I applaud the HIEs that are out there. You know, it's a it's a tough role to begin. As we know, going back years, the uh, state sponsored and the government funded HIEs. Uh, failure. Now you got some of these. We've got some good revenue stream. We got a little uh, bit of audio. We got a little bit of audio challenges. Kate, Craig, and Zafar, if there's anything you can do to to uh, to do anything about your audio. All right, uh, Craig, go ahead. Sorry, try again. Yep. Yep. So, so, I, so I applaud the HIEs because um, you know it's it's one of those things that one might call like a necessary evil only because. One would think that we should be more interoperable right now between our different systems that we have our applications, um, and we're not. And that's what's causing us to have a bridge, a strategy for a period of time, an HIE to help service uh, those varied IT systems that we have so that we can get uh, some limited information to the right providers at the right time to make the best decisions. And that's something that we've created within the industry by having such varied and not having the, the standards in place and the enforcement of standards to force that to occur. So that's kind of the, the situation that we're in. Uh, it's kind of like a, having a bunch of roads, but uh, they don't really connect unless you somehow create some little bridge or an expressway in between them to connect the roads. You would like to have those roads already be connected. So I do applaud the HIEs. They're expensive, though. When we look at trying to control the cost of healthcare, uh, the HIEs, if we could somehow move ourselves past that and have the systems be more interoperable between them, just like in the example that was talked about with Epic, and I don't want to you know, jump on uh, Epic's bandwagon too much because there are other vendors that do the same thing or other partners, but when you start going in between them, that's where we run into the challenges. If there is an easier way for that to happen, and there's a couple of niches out there that would eliminate the need and the cost uh, and the expense of maintaining a relationship with an HIE, and then you can only connect with those other providers that also pay and connect to that HIE. So it's kind of like an opt-in. Not everybody's automatically part of it, so you're still going to have some missing data in your record because not everybody participates in the HIEs. Michael, what are your thoughts around all this? And uh, I think one of the one of the things that uh, you're here to talk about is maybe you've got a, a better way, or you've got some thoughts about uh, things that can be done here to make things easier. No easy, no easy button. There's no easy button for any of this, right? So this this is the hard stuff. Um, so just a couple of thoughts on what Anthony. I thought your comment was interesting. If you're talking Epic to Epic, is that even interoperability? What that really does is speak to I think one of the ways that the way that we think about interoperability has changed over time because 10 years ago, when we were talking healthcare interop, it was about helping systems within the walls of a hospital or a hospital system communicate with each other, right? And, and to ensure smooth operational flow of clinical care activities and billing activities and those things. 
it's interesting that now, without you setting the stage or the boundary, this conversation has almost entirely revolved around really capital S system interoperability. How do we actually create organizational interoperability, moving data outside of our boundaries into somebody else's and improve healthcare and those mechanisms. HIEs, I think, were like the first approach to that that, that showed some success. And, and like Craig, hats off to those organizations because it's <clears throat> hard, thankless work um, that's really important in, in the operational uh, processes that, that we use to, to apply care to patients. But Zafar has mentioned a couple of times about interoperability of the type that involves getting data up into the cloud where we can analyze it, we can do machine learning, we can build new risk models and scores and do exciting things with it. And that's something that, that isn't really facilitated well. By, by an HIE who are, who are really in the business of helping to streamline the way that we exchange data to care for one patient today, right? And, and what Zafar is talking about is how do we take data on MOS and use it in a way that will help us to develop improvements for how we take care of patients tomorrow. And that's a different, it's a different way of thinking about interoperability. <clears throat> HIEs are not regional data warehouses, right? The regional data exchanges. And so there is another need to be fulfilled, which is let's see if we can figure out all of the kind of authorization and permissioning and regulatory issues. And if we can, can we start building um, the data warehouse equivalent of an HIE? We're working right now with a, a government agency. <clears throat> I'm trying to decide if I can name, I can't. Yeah. Uh, that, that is that is in the business of enticing um, uh, healthcare systems within a particular region of the world to share their data centrally with this government agency in order to be able to create these um, uh, new predictive models. And they're looking for more and more and more data. And so the great thing is the technology has progressed to the point now where we have cloud-based solutions that allow us to create a platform easily accessible by all of the organizations in this region who can then independent of their EMR software vendor du jour, uh, send data up in HL7 or Fire or whatever their comfortable format is. And we can standardize that in two ways, one into a nice interoperating Fire-based server, and then using the SQL on Fire um, flattened table mechanism, get that centralized into a data warehouse. And we apply de-identification and date shifting and all kinds of things to it in order to keep that data clean. And then it enables this regional government authority to be able to get access to the kind of retrospective analysis of data that, um, uh, that they're looking for. That is an application of interop that I, it would have been really difficult to imagine, right? Again, that was what CA Big was kind of trying to imagine um, 10, 12 years ago in the cancer space couldn't pull it off because of regulatory issues, patient consent issues, um, but the, the, the progress on the technology front to enable a solution for a problem like that, once we solve the kind of legal and paperwork problems, it's just been, just been astounding. Um, to me, that's part of what makes this exciting right now. Zafar, what are you, any thoughts there? So I have, a, I have a question for Michael regarding, okay, so if we put the data in the cloud, we crunch it, so the question is, are we are we doing it for the greater good of the patient or are we doing it for commercial purposes? Because that's become very controversial, right? So when a health system 
does put data in the cloud and crunch it. A lot of times the health system gets accused of somehow commercializing that with the cloud vendor versus it's a really good idea to use that compute power to find disease patterns, et cetera. But how could we just have it for the gain of the patient versus the gain of the payer or the provider? Have you seen any sort of models that can simplify that? Because I get that question a lot in terms of from patients directly that say, hey, if you use our data, what are you doing with it? Are you making money from it? Are you selling it? What are you doing? Yeah, um, fair question. And and there have absolutely been you know missteps in the last few years among the cloud providers, if not actual legal or regulatory missteps, huge optical mi missteps, right? In, in, in making something appear as though there was something untoward going on, even if it was essentially above board. Um, these are big challenges and I think the industry is learning from them. Here's what I will say that I think is exciting. I have, I am on the phone in conversations with healthcare organizations literally every day who are looking at what can they use cloud technology for to improve their businesses. And nine times out of 10, the discussion is, we just wanna be able to use the technology because we think that we have a different way that we could develop a risk model that will help us to apply better care for our patients back here at home. And it's a closed loop. We're gonna send our data to the cloud. We're gonna do some number crunching on it. We're gonna get some results. We're gonna bring that back into the EMR and it's gonna provide decision support for our patients. That's where most at least are starting. And so I think that there is a, a sincerity in the intent of most healthcare providers and systems and even payer organizations that their first steps into the cloud are genuinely about helping to provide better services to patients. Now there is, and this is America, and so we can't always like disassociate the greater good from what is commercially viable or beneficial because it's a free market system and somehow that's how you deliver greater good. Um, there is always out there, and we do have some people who are like, we're trying to figure out if there's a way that we can unlock more commercial opportunities through the use of our data. And, and, and in those cases, we, we proceed very, very carefully. You will not see too many announcements from big cloud providers, um, at least for a few years, you will not see too many announcements saying, hey, we're engaging in a way where we, the cloud provider, are going to be consuming a bunch of patient data and doing things with it. Because even if the agreements are there and the data is de-identified and the BAAs are all in place, the optics are just so bad, right? You'll see one or two here or there, but you won't see too many. So what you'll see more often will be a third party brought into the loop. You've got an organization that's providing cloud technology. You've got a healthcare provider or a payer, who, a payer who's wanting to do something with their data. And then you've got a third party who acts as a little bit of an independent intermediary and they are bringing technical and data science expertise to help the healthcare organization maximize the value that they're getting out of the cloud organization without the healthcare organization doing anything that looks like they're assigning um, ownership or access of that data up to the cloud organization. That third party intermediary is helping to provide, it's a little bit analogous to an honest broker kind of setup, right? Uh, helping to provide uh, more trustworthy access to patient data and avoid those um, those situations that might uh, be tempting um, somebody in power to use data inappropriately.
All right, let me let me bring uh hold on, let me bring Craig in here. Craig, um, what are your thoughts on what you're hearing? Um, you know, I, I think the uh, the cloud aspect is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, you know, the cloud is the cloud is really nothing more than a data center. It's just somebody else is hosting it. Uh, you know, they're all at different parts of the country or the globe, actually. But you know, you walk into a cloud environment, they're there. I think it's kind of more of um, what we do with the data once it's there. But we could, you know, we could put the data quote unquote anywhere. Uh, I do think that you know, the thing that was asked, making sure this is for um, the, the right um, uh, that, that we do the right thing for the patient the most important question that we have out there. And we've got to make sure that whatever we do with the data, where we put the data, how we interact with the data is all the right thing for the patient. I think as long as we keep that in the top of mind as we continue to try to advance or influence the way that we move, I think we'll uh, we'll end at a good spot. Zafar, what did you think of Michael's answer to your question? Any follow-up questions for him? So, so my follow-up to Michael is, okay, so I get that the health systems are working with the cloud providers, et cetera. So, so they're all missing one step, right? And the key step is, if you're putting through a project of this magnitude, shouldn't there be a patient representative as well? Somebody that is looking out for the greater good of the patient by health system. Like, for example, in my health system, I could probably assign a patient to join a project to provide their view on the discussions that are happening and make this more transparent. But I don't actually see that happening in practice. Have you ever seen a project spun up that way where it actually has a patient representing the patients? Yeah, but it happens it happens further upstream, but you've got me thinking, right? I, I think the idea of bringing the patient closer to that um, part of the data exchange where their data is actually going to be flowing up into some big, scary cloud provider, I think there's a lot of merit to that. I've seen, I'm sure, what you have seen, which is uh, voice of the patient representation on institutional review boards, on governance committees, on ethics review boards, generally within the healthcare provider organization, right? Um, and so the healthcare providers I have seen have taken that responsibility to say, here's a project that we're going to do with a bunch of data. It's gonna go to some places here that you may not be comfortable with. Give us your perspective. And that conversation ensues and becomes part of the governance process. So yes, I've seen it happen, but I've generally seen it upstream. And it's interesting to think about is there a place, I talked about this sort of three-way partnership, right, between the healthcare provider, the cloud provider, and maybe an analytic service provider. Is there a place for patient representation that sits kind of in the middle of those three, gives them more kind of direct insight and understanding into what's happening there, and helps all of those participants to make sure that they're doing as Craig says, and keeping the patient interests um, top of mind. I want to go to Craig and see, Craig, do you have a question for uh, one or both of your co-panelists, something that you're working through, working on, and, and wanting another opinion on? Yeah, I think, actually, I think this would probably go for both of them. So we've we've actually seen some recent news about big tech and their adjustments, uh, both with Apple and Google. And since uh, Michael's really close 
on the Google side of things. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what Safari is, uh, is at with some of the big tech relationships. Um, I'm just kind of curious as we look at, you know, how we are progressing forward and even with interoperability being a, a piece of the focus, you know, do you have a different perspective about how they could potentially participate in this or not participate in this and still allow the uh, industry to, you know, kind of uh, struggle along? Zafar? So we, we're, you know, in, we're in Seattle and definitely we have good relationships with the, the cloud type vendor providers, the AWSs, the Microsofts of the world. But in all the discussions I've had with them, I, I still feel they miss the whole patient component input to all of this, right? A lot of times you get tech companies even trying to tell providers that they know healthcare better than a provider, for example. And very few people discuss, well, if we're putting something like this together, can you involve a representative group of patients in that discussion? Because I think that that breeds more transparency as to what's happening versus, well, I suppose we all read read what's, what some health system is doing versus another, and we sort of get that information through through different channels, but you don't necessarily know what that level of involvement is. So I've, I've had a lot of conversations with different vendors. I don't think I've ever been in a meeting where a vendor has said, so what do your patients think about all this? It's always them trying to tell us what they think healthcare is going to look like. <laughs> so that's really my view on it. Michael? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've been on the receiving end of that Zafar two years ago, working within a, a healthcare provider before coming to, um, to SADA, ironically, talking to somebody um, at Google, frustrated, be, I was frustrated because there was a, a service that we wanted to use that at the time wasn't covered under their business associates agreement. And I was explaining to them in simple language why it was that this particular service needed to be covered under a BAA if we were going to be using it in a particular way. And I got I got an answer back that said, yeah, we talked to our legal department and they said, this isn't an issue for PHI and they've been doing this for 12 years so they know what they're talking about. I'm literally sitting in a hospital that was built to service injured World War I service veterans, right? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm in a building that has been doing healthcare and dealing with patient privacy for over a hundred years. And this tech company legal department is trying to tell me that they know better what is important for my patients because they've got some lawyer who's been working on it for 12. So, so I know exactly what you're talking about so far. Um, I, I, I love some of the ideas that have been exchanged here. And, and honestly, I will take some of them back and, and share them and we'll, we'll cultivate them because um, I think that what we too often think of as kind of a two-way partnership between a technology vendor and a healthcare payer or provider needs to be thought of more as a three-way partnership. And interestingly, tech companies have a rich history of bringing in the end user in focus groups, trial setups, beta products, right, in order to get ultimately the view of the end user on the service that they're providing. Some of those models, it seems to me, could be easily repurposed to bringing in the patient viewpoint into how we deploy technology solutions to their healthcare problems. I think there's great opportunity there and it's worth exploring. Craig, let me ask you, um, 
What do you think is the duty or the role of CIOs to foster interoperability? I'm thinking there's a number of ways that you can do it. You know, you mentioned Chime. You can do your advocacy uh, working with those organizations. When you meet with your vendors, you can put pressure on them to play nice with each other. Uh, you can work on your own organization. Um, you know, before we were talking about different challenges of contracting and legal, you know, we can't deal with, we can't influence what the other party's doing so much, but we can make sure we're in a good position to, to move quickly and to get deals done. Patience is another issue. And then our partners, we all talk about these 100, 150 uh, individual practitioners and all the platforms that they're on, and we have to deal with that. Well, what, what can CIOs do thinking about all those things in order to create an ecosystem where it's easier for interoperability to flourish, maybe with less moving parts and less railroad tracks of different sizes? What do you think is, is the role there and the responsibility? Yeah, I think it is to, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, the vendors, I do think it's it's shifting the mindset of a vendor to really being a partner with you and helping them understand, you know, some of the complexities that you have in, in your seat and trying to provide the right information for your clinicians to make you know, better decisions. And that interoperability becomes a key component of that. Uh, you know, they all have, you know, different incentives and different uh, ways that they want to uh, project and move their product. And I don't think any of us on the phone uh, or listening have made a decision because somebody was more interoperable or less interoperable than somebody else. So it's not really one of the decision factors of when you make selections. However, it's a core component of you and your seat. And, uh, and I think it's really just kind of continuing to educate and bringing them in and having them be part of the solution. Because uh, if you do, like I mentioned before, keep the patient uh, in the center, front and center, that is the best way to deliver care is to have all the information available to that provider about at different parts of the country, different places where they visited, and really have all that be presented in a manner that allows people to make better decisions on that. And if we look at the advancement of our quality and safety and uh, ensuring that, uh, you know, that we are uh, serving our communities the best, they need to be part of that. They need to be sitting at the table with us. It's not like a group of CIOs trying to demand or come in and say, you need to do this, you need to do that. I do think it is kind of putting your arms around them and bringing them in and saying, hey, it's, let's go and make this happen. If we go back several years ago in a previous life when I was uh, back in North Carolina, we did that uh, with between uh, Cerner and with Epic, uh, brought them together, and the two largest systems actually were able to share data in between because we shared the same populations, uh, same patients, and we brought them together and were one of the first to do it at that time. That's going back many years, uh, but we need a, a more concerted way of doing that more at a global, at least at a national basis, because you know the 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 people move around so much and there's so much information out there and there's a lot of information that's probably irrelevant. We've got to be able to filter that out through as well and make sure that we do kind of bring that together. So I really think really Anthony is bringing them in as a partner and trying to continue to educate them, you know, of the difficulty that you have in your seat of trying to do that for your providers and ultimately your patients. 
Um, Zafar, you know, what Craig is saying about facilitating conversations and I guess using that, not bully pulpit, but that's a term for, uh, you know, someone who's got influence over the individuals they're trying to interact with. Do you see that as a strategy, bringing sort of an ecosystem together for a conversation and trying to get people to bridge gaps that way? What do you think is, is, is are the CIO's best tools to, to create, you know, a, a more interoperable ecosystem? So, yeah, I completely agree with Craig's view on this. The CIO is going to be that advocate. I also see the CIO as being a mediator between so many different parties, right? So you've got you've got the clinicians, you've got the system vendors, you've got the cloud vendors. You CIOs certainly have to advocate for the patient as well and protect the, the patients that you have in your system. So it is sort of a good communication, facilitation, mediation, and because it's healthcare, navigating some of the politics between your internal customers and your external folks. So it's a, it's a multifaceted role on days can be super frustrating and on days you can have a bit better wins, but it is, uh, it's very different than we were just technologists, right? There's a lot more to do now than it was great when we just fixed data centers, but now we've got to do all kinds of other discussions and some are easy to do. And I would say we sometimes have to have difficult discussions. So I agree with Craig. Yeah, and when, when you were just fixing data centers, everybody wanted to get into the C-suite, right, Zafar? And now you guys want to get out. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding with that. <laughs> uh, Michael, your thoughts? I was just going to say you can hire somebody to fix your data center and to organize the data and to manage the security. But the rare the, the rare skill set of the successful healthcare CIO is that sort of judgment um, to be able to understand when to pull what triggers to make things happen between all of those competing interests that you just named so far. So, um, so it's a tough job, but everything else you can outsource, right? All right, we're we're just about out of time. And what I want to do is just, I want to get a final thought around the board. Any final piece of advice, final thought for our listeners? They're struggling. We're all struggling with interoperability. We talked about HIEs being somewhat helpful, but Craig mentioned they're a little expensive. Um, not a cure-all. Um, the government is not going to fix this anytime soon. They would have had to do it with meaningful use, right? They would have had to bake it in there to have a real effect and that ship has sailed. So um, just your final thoughts on what's, what we're doing today. Uh, Craig, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think for um, my standpoint and for the audience and those that aren't able to, to make it but might listen, it's really it's just got to keep up the fight. Oh, we got some audio. Let's clean up the audio real quick. All right, go ahead. Try again, Craig. Thank you. Yep, sure. So it, it really is to uh, keep up the fight. You know, this is something that is very important. Uh, there's several things out there like patient identification. There's several things that have been out there for, you know, the last 15 years. Once we started automating our systems, you know, 20 years ago, that's when the problem actually started to, to happen because, you know, people are using the fax machines, you know, a couple of decades ago and sharing records and information, you know, the old manual way but now we automated it we need to really mature ourselves uh, so many other industries and make that data uh, available the one thing i always said is you know we, we should never compete on data we should compete on how we use the data 
we should all have access to all the data that uh, is available uh, on our patients and for our providers. And I think we all are in the same spirit of making sure that happens. And it's a partnership that needs to take place with our vendors to allow them to uh, continue to mature that because they ultimately have the uh, technology to, to make it happen. And I think that partnership will go a long way. So just keep up the good fight. Very good, Zafar. Sort of my parting comment would be that as health system CIOs across the country, we should really talk more. We should collaborate more, share ideas. We should band together uh, and work together and come up against these vendors so we can break down some of the barriers and get things moving. So, yeah, keep going. And Michael. Oh, come on. You don't have to come up against the vendors. We can <laughs> as a team, but you can do like we did today and share brilliant ideas with vendors. And then we'll go back and see how we can how we can make the world a better place. Um, it, it's interesting. You know, you look at the, the sort of minimum CDI required data now that's required for interoperability. And it's just this much, but it's going to grow. Right. It's going to get to a point where, like Craig said, by 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 regulation or mandate, um, the data is going to be everywhere for everybody and, and, and will compete based on the services that we provide on top of it, not on our possession of the data. And that is a new paradigm, right? And I think it's helpful uh, uh, industry leaders to start um, carrying the banner for that paradigm and, and helping people to understand this is different from how you used to think of the way that we did business, but we're going to do this differently now. And then start nibbling away at that a bite at a time. This is not something that you have to do all at once. It is something that you can do a piece at a time, but keep up because the expectations, I think, of the industry and of the patients, to, to say nothing of the government, is going to be that over time we've opened up the gates and the data flows freely. And, and it's going to be important that you're making the, the time and investments now to be prepared to keep up with those changes as they continue to roll our way. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this webinar is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our tremendous, wonderful panel, Dr. Zafar Chaudhry, Craig Richardville, and Michael Ames. And I want to thank Sada for sponsoring and I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.